What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here on this Thursday, February 18, to preview the opening weekend of college baseball games. Uh, after the longest offseason in the sports history, we are, we are ready to go. I am so ready to talk about you know, on-field action as opposed to just previewing general stuff. Uh, so very excited for this podcast and for opening day tomorrow. Before Joe and I get into all of that, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. To check out the Rapsodo National Player Database, go to rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, like I mentioned, it's uh, opening day eve as we're recording this podcast. Uh, hopefully some of you are listening to it on opening day eve. Uh, for those of you that are tuning in on, on opening day itself, uh, welcome to, to you as well. It's, uh, it's an exciting time here as the, the games are finally here. It is, however, perhaps tempered by the weather throughout the country that is going to make this a very cold opening day and has, uh, has already uh, really done a number on the opening weekend schedule. Indeed it has. Indeed it has. Uh, and that, that's a good note you opened there on welcome to listeners. There might be some subset of listeners who are just jumping in with us now. Maybe you've been more focused on you know, football and then into basketball, and maybe you're just checking in a little bit on college baseball right now. And if that's the case, we certainly appreciate you coming along for the ride and, and hope you stick with us throughout the season. Uh, but yeah, uh, just a housekeeping note sure. uh, off of that show that though was a good note. I should have, I should have uh, <laughs> done this before. Uh, it, it, yes, we are. We are excited for everyone that is back with us after the off season. Um, we're going twice a week again throughout the season. You can find us on all of your favorite podcasting apps: Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us. You can subscribe to us there, and some of them let you rate and review us, and we greatly appreciate all of those. Um, the First show of the week, early in the week, it's going to be recapping what happened over the weekend. Second show, later in the week, Thursday or Friday, uh, you're, you're looking at uh, what we're doing now, which is previewing the, the weekend. And there will still be some midweek games this year, so we'll you know touch on anything of relevance there. Um, hopefully, we'll still be bringing on some guests throughout the season, still trying to figure out how that all works into, into the schedule. But uh, you know, for the purposes of the, the, the broader purposes, the, the second podcast of the of the week is uh, is what you're listening to now, and, and is kind of a uh, a preview of the weekend to come. So, it, it you mentioned the the schedule having uh, been through a journey over the last few days. Let's put it that way. I 
there's a couple things here. One is that I think it speaks to having the perspective of not having had a 2020 season really to speak of and kind of the appreciation I have for that, that, I mean, this schedule really has been put through the ringer when you take into consideration things like, I mean, really it's just been a handful of COVID for the most part, it's weather because the, the winter weather that moved across the country the last few days that has, has really taken hold in places like, like Texas, where you wouldn't expect it to be a big issue. Uh, that has really been the bigger disruptor on the schedule. So you, you've had some cancellations, you've had some teams move around. Oklahoma has had three scheduled opening weekend opponents now. Most, no, most now, most recently, they are taking on Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So there's been a lot of movement, and yet, you know, we, we've had we've had you know the State Farm tournament, which we'll talk about later, has been moved back a day. You've got a lot of series not starting until Saturday. And yeah, I look at the schedule and like, I'm still really excited about it. I mean, some of that is, is because there are some, some genuine bangers on this, this schedule that we'll talk about, but it's also just, it's so nice to have it back. I mean, um, I, I think it goes without saying anybody who's in the position like we are of having missed college baseball so much last year will feel similarly, but I think I've been even a little bit taken aback and a little bit surprised by how, um, how just thankful I am to have it back in my life and even little small things like every week I have to put together our top 25 tracking sheet because you and I track the results all weekend. And that's how we get the information that ends up in the top 25 on Monday morning. That's, you know, our web people copy that over and put it into the document and even just putting that together and being able to look and see what games are coming up and all that. It um, was, you know, that's normally kind of a a task I do every week that I kind of like, Oh, I got to put this document together, but it was a joy this week. And it probably won't be a joy <laughs> much beyond that, but because it was just kind of nice to have that back in my life, that was, that was kind of neat. So I think perspective has, has done wonders there, but of course, as we will talk about the reality of the situation is that this weekend's just going to kind of be yucky in a lot of ways. You know, we've got the cancellations. There's also going to be a lot of series and, and tournaments and, and what have you, one-off games. We've got a, a decent number of one-off games, which you don't normally have opening weekend, um, that are just going to be played in poor weather. Um, and if people are itching to get back out there and play, coaches really want to get games in as early as possible because you, you don't know what the rest of the season is going to look like in a lot of cases. And so I understand that, but it, it does mean that we're going to have a lot of, uh, lot of folks huddled in dugouts for warmth, I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah, so we mentioned the last time, you know, in the, the, our, our last podcast that Kentucky's series at UNC was the first one to fall victim uh, to a COVID cancellation in 2021. Uh, since then, UNC has replaced Kentucky on the schedule with James Madison. Uh, the Dukes coming down for a three-game series. There have been a few other COVID-related cancellations. San Jose State is on, what is it, a three-week pause right now. And uh, Fresno State uh, is on pause. Um, Those are two of the more notable ones. I think we mentioned uh, Fordham's situation on the last podcast as well. Uh, We will be tracking all of those throughout the season at baseballamerica.com, you can check out what series, uh, you know, upcoming series are being canceled due to that. Uh, we'll keep a running list of the more notable series, games that were lost uh, 
um, due to the the pandemic stuff. Uh, and you know, if th there are other assorted things in that document, um, including the current status of the Ivy League and Georgetown is in limbo as well. So kind of one-stop shopping if you're looking to uh, to try and get a sense of, of where what kind of impact that is having in any given weekend or on the season uh, writ large. So check that out there if you're interested. Uh, the other notable thing, Joe, like you mentioned, is that the State Farm College Baseball Classic in Arlington, uh, the weekend's biggest tournament, has been delayed by a day due to the ongoing winter weather situation crisis um, in Texas. They, uh, they, they made the, the decision to just push the whole thing back, now running Saturday through Monday. Uh, we'll see if further updates come on that. Um, obviously, if you've been tracking the news at all, you're aware that a pretty significant winter storm has hit Texas and stayed in Texas all week. It's making travel difficult. Uh, it's, there's power, there's a water situation, um, you know, in the in, in various parts of Texas, including the Dallas-Fort Worth area where the tournament is being held. Um, so we'll we'll preview that that tournament here later in the the episode, but it uh, it already is facing some significant challenges uh, and, and has already been postponed by one day. Yeah, it's that, you know, it's, it's one of those deals where that, that tournament kind of, I think is going to drive a lot of the, um, it's just going to drive a lot of attention in this opening weekend of college baseball. There are other marquee things, Miami and Florida for uh, one prominent example, but that tournament has been so highly anticipated and is so loaded that I, I think, getting that tournament, um, I don't want to overstate its importance in the grand scheme of things, but for opening weekend to really feel complete in, in a lot of ways and for it to be satisfying in a lot of ways, it feels like that tournament needs to get something out of it. Now, I want them to do it safely. I'm not saying just by any means necessary, get out there and make sure you play 27 innings every day. It's not what I'm saying, but I, but I do think there there is something to one of the reasons why it, it feels to me anyway, let me put it this way. It feels to me like everyone around that tournament, and understandably so, is working really hard to make sure they get something out of that tournament. Uh, and if, if this was just a, a series, even between two marquee teams, it feels a little like maybe they would have moved on to an alternate location, or maybe they would have said, you know what, let's just go our separate ways and find other games or something. I, I don't, we'll, we'll never know that for certain. However, because it is the tournament it is, it feels like they are really working pretty hard to let's just hold on and see if by the time, you know, Saturday rolls around, we can get out there and, and get this done and, and have it go through Monday because it, I think it is an, an important tournament that everyone wants to see happen. And so I think there's a, a, a certain amount of work being put in to, to make sure it happens that if this were something any more minor than what it is that I, I just don't know that we would be seeing right now. Yeah, I think uh, there's probably something to that. Uh, Rice is scheduled, was scheduled, I should say, to host a tournament uh, at Reckling Park this weekend that included Washington. Washington already dropped out and found something else. They're going to play Irvine this weekend, who lost its series uh, against Fresno due to Fresno's previously mentioned COVID situation. Uh, you know, so very well possible that 
one of these or more of these teams might have made similar moves if it were, um, you know, a little differently constructed. But I think the fact that it's a dome is probably helping keep everyone together. And then also, while Mississippi and Arkansas are not, you know, next door to, to Arlington, uh, you know, the fact that all of these teams are relatively close uh, and going through weather situations of their own, um, you know, I, I don't know that there'd be any guarantee. There's snow on the ground in Oxford, Mississippi today. I assume there's in Starkville. I just haven't seen pictures. Um, probably in Fayetteville as well. So given that situation, it becomes probably harder to say, well, what if we just stayed home and did X, you know? Uh, so there's a lot going into this. Um, hopefully they are able to, uh, to play the tournament. Um, but yeah, the, the safety of everyone getting to the tournament and then, you know, making sure that everything goes off well, once they are, there is obviously the priority, uh, and as, as it should be. The other piece of news that I think is worth touching on here, Joe, is that the Big Ten uh, finally produced a schedule. Uh, that was something that people were really, really waiting for. If, if you've been on college baseball Twitter uh, anytime the last two months, uh, you're probably pretty aware that the Big Ten did not have a schedule. There was a lot of anxiety about that uh, at a level that, frankly, I'm not used to seeing. I mean, like, I get that. The, what the Big Ten was doing in terms of going conference only was kind of anxiety producing on its own. And then there was no schedule and there didn't seem to be much urgency to produce a schedule. But I will also say that, you know, the SEC didn't have a soccer schedule this fall until a week before its season started. And I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not big on college soccer Twitter, but I have a feeling that everyone took that a little better. And I understand why it might have been taken a little better, but um, still interesting to see the level of anxiety that no Big Ten schedule was producing. Anyway, that's now over. Uh, they produced a schedule. It is absolutely a unique schedule because they're playing a conference-only season with 13 conference teams, uh, and they're trying to start it on March 5, a date that usually in the season, most of their teams would not be ready to start trying to play home games yet. So a lot of factors going into this, including just trying to find places where they feel like the weather will cooperate well enough to play, and then managing the uneven number of, uh, of teams is a significant problem. Thanks again, as always, to Wisconsin for, uh, for not playing baseball. Uh, so Joe, the, the upshot of this is there are normal series there are multi-team weekends. There are like many tournaments effectively, uh, especially at the start of the season in Round Rock, Texas, and Greenville, North Carolina, and Minneapolis, where of course Minnesota uses the Vikings stadium early on in the season. So they've, they're, they're gonna play some of those early on, but even throughout the season, you've got weekends where there might be three teams in one location and you're just playing playing kind of a round robin thing so that again everyone you know is in action at all times because because of the uneven numbers so i'm very fascinated to see how this all works out um it's gonna it makes kind of evaluating the big 10 even more difficult just because the schedules are 
are not what we're used to looking at, but I, I'm, I'm happy that, that they were able to work it out and, and excited to see what it looks like uh, as a finished product. Yeah, me too. And I'm, I'm kind of with you on your initial thought that it was kind of surprising to me how much angst there was about the schedule not being released. And don't get me wrong, I was eager too. But to me, it was it felt a little bit over the top though, because I don't I don't feel like there was ever any risk that the, maybe it's just because people feel burned by the Big Ten before. But I don't think there was a ton of risk of the Big Ten being like, hey, actually, you know what? Never mind. We're just not gonna we're not gonna play baseball. It was, there was going to be a schedule. It just you know it took a little time to come out. And I think now we kind of maybe understand why in a lot of cases because you are right it is wild and I am here for it frankly but the other thing I would say is that I think the Big Ten actually deserves some credit and I understand that I'm not going to find a lot of people if I go around and, and try to find people who are willing to to give the Big Ten some credit and uh you know say nice things about them given how much angst and, and frustration there is about how the Big Ten has handled athletics during the pandemic but what I will say is I think they do deserve credit for doing what they can to, to make the conference schedule as robust as it was, because I think it would have been really easy for them to say, well, okay, well, the weather sucks here until, you know, sometimes well into April. So let's just start conference about when we normally do. Let's do eight weekends and let's do four games instead of three. And we'll do a 32 game conference season and then we'll call it a day. And then that's, or maybe we'll do nine weeks and, and, you know, um, cancel the conference room, whatever it is, and just do like kind of basically the same conference schedule, just with more games shoved on the weekends. And that would have been pretty easy. Um, but it's clear that they have thought outside the box a little bit to try to maximize the number of games for these teams. So you can be frustrated that there was no non-conference. And if you're a team, you know, like a Minnesota that likes to bring in some tough competition to us bank or Illinois, which, you know, had, was scheduled to, to play some, uh, you know, some tournaments down South and, and they typically travel a little bit early in the season or whatever. Like, I understand you're disappointed about that or Iowa who always has kind of a random, you know, good opponent coming to Iowa city in May, it seems like. So I get the frustration there, but they could have truck cut this back a lot more than they already did. So it feels like they deserve a little bit of credit for being creative to try to maximize what the conference schedule looks like, because I'm sure this version of the conference schedule that we got yesterday was not easy to compile. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, th this is something that would be worth looking into if it wasn't, you know, opening week and we didn't have a million other things to do. But yeah, the just the story of how it got created uh, is undoubtedly a fascinating one. Uh, I, uh, I the the strategy behind how you're going to handle some of these multi-team weekends is going to be very interesting. Uh, it, it will be compelling. The Big Ten is a compelling conference this year with a bunch of really good players. Uh, this is not what I would have expected when they said conference-only schedule, um, but it's it's going to be intriguing. I'm I'm definitely interested. I mean, I'm always going to be interested in what's happening in the Big Ten, uh, but I'm definitely interested as it stands. And, you know, I'm excited that it's going to get going on March 5th. I'm, I'm glad that they were able to find a way to do that because you're right. It would have been very easy to just say like, well, we're not going to, we're not going to push it early on. Like you guys are generally home either the fourth or the fifth weekend of the year. Like we'll see you then. Uh, and we'll try and just like keep series in places like Indiana or Maryland, which are, you know, a little more warm weather ish 
than Northwestern or, uh, or Michigan state, you know, uh, but they didn't do that. So again, you know, it, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch, to see how this all, all unfolds. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that it, it, it comes off well. Um, you know, they, they did abandon the conference tournament, which is unfortunate, but it allows them to play a few more regular season games. Uh, so they're, they're going to play 44 games, which is pretty healthy if they can get them all in. Now it's still the least of any major conference, uh, but if they, if they can successfully get them all in, um, it at least is a pretty solid uh, number of games that, that are scheduled. So we will, uh, we'll talk more about the Big Ten in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's, they're, they're definitely going to fade from front of mind here uh, until they get back out on the field. But uh, once they do so, I'm, I'm going to be happy to, uh, to welcome them to, uh, to the party. All right, Joe, I think we hit on all of our news here. So let's uh, switch gears and get to uh, get to some of the, the previews uh, of some of the more notable games and series happening this weekend. And we'll do that in a second. But first, check this out. Okay, Joe, we don't have a snappy name for our what, what we're about to do here when we run down the best games and series of the weekend. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll work into that uh, as the season goes on. Maybe we won't. Uh, but every week we're going to choose some games. I'm going to choose the bulk of them, and then Joe is going to uh, tack on uh, a, a, another one a little further off the radar, uh, just to make sure we we get a little more diversity in what we're talking about uh, on any given week. And we're gonna we're gonna break them down. Uh, I, I think if this were a college football podcast, we'd make some picks, but uh, we're, we're not really going to make picks here because picking a, a, a tournament like the, the State Farm uh, tournament in Arlington this weekend is, uh, you know, I, I have no idea how you go about that. Six teams all playing three games. Uh, you know, I, I, I got no idea how to how to pick that. So we're uh, we're just going to talk about the games here. Um and maybe we'll uh, we'll be able to work in as the season goes on some uh, some wagers, I suppose we can call them, or something to make it a little more exciting uh, for for Joe and I as uh, get a little something on the line here. But for now, we're just going to uh, we're just going to run through some of the most important things uh, to watch this weekend. And I think the the place we're going to start, Joe, is uh, with the top ranked Florida Gators taking on Miami in Gainesville is the opening of the new Florida ballpark. Uh, it's happening on Friday. The, the first game of the series will be on SEC Network at 3 o'clock. You can watch the rest of it on SEC Network Plus. Number one versus number 11, a rivalry series, typically played on the second weekend of the season. They moved it up to opening weekend because of the ACC restructuring its schedule some for Miami's sake they had to do this to get it played I am so happy they did it and I am so excited to see everything about this the new ballpark Florida as the number one team in the country Miami's new look rotation there's there's just so much going on here Joe uh, where, where do you think we we should uh jump into this series I mean I think the the obvious thing is the fact that it's always going to be a tough task I mean really for either of these teams right 
to go on the road and win the series. Florida has, has done a lot of that lately against Miami famously, but just generally speaking, but it's even harder given how good Florida is. And then, oh, by the way, Miami's rolling out a rotation that includes two freshmen and a converted reliever. Now those guys are all pretty talented, but that's a tough assignment, especially for those freshmen. Their first time out in college baseball is going to be, you know, opening up Florida's new ballpark against, you know, the, the, you know, arguably the best team in the preseason that we've seen in a, in a long, long time. And it strikes me as one of those series that um, I don't want to discount Miami's chances to, to pull something off, but it's kind of one of those series where if you're Miami, you have to come in with a certain set of expectations and understand that, you know, just getting a game here might be a positive result or even just feeling like you really belonged and really competed well this weekend might be enough to kind of make you feel good and, and springboard you into ACC play because it's entirely likely that that Florida comes out here and, and, and looks just looks like the uh, much better team because on paper they are. Um, but if Miami's able to make it not quite look so like such a big gulf between the two teams, I think you have to count that as a win, even though that sounds kind of weird to say that a Miami team should feel satisfied just coming out of there with, with a win and, and competing. Well, I mean, it does sound weird, but they also absolutely should be just satisfied with that. I mean, first of all, Florida is the number one team in the country, and we've waxed poetically uh, at length about how good we think this Gators team is. Uh, then, though, if you look at um, the, the fact that Miami's throwing three guys who – don't have starting experience, really. Uh, Fetterman, Daniel Fetterman, moving to the Friday night role. I believe he has started some games in his career, but not, you know, big ACC games or, you know, certainly not this. Uh, and then two freshmen. Uh, so good luck with all of that uh, as you, you know, settle into your new roles. Now you have to deal with uh, facing Florida and matching up against, it's not just facing the Florida lineup. It's also matching up against their pitching staff. Um, you know, so that's, that's tough. But then when you look at the history of this series, the recent history, it's not good for Miami. Miami has not won this series since 2014. And they got swept in Coral Gables a year ago. Um, my, Florida just doesn't lose these rivalry games against Miami and Florida state. They have owned those games, those series under Kevin O'Sullivan. And it doesn't matter whether they're playing them on a weekend, like they do with Miami or like they would uh, anytime they match up in the postseason, or if they're playing them in a midweek, like they do with Florida state, it, they just win those games. And I know I, I say that knowing that Florida state did end last season by beating Florida in Gainesville, like, but beyond that, like it just doesn't happen. Um, so it's uh, it's going to be really tricky for Miami to go on the road to to go on the road with a more inexperienced team than what the Gators have, and with the excitement that the new ballpark is adding, and the fact that Florida has you know probably feeling like they they had something taken away from them last season, just like every team, but especially them as knowing they were the number one team in the country when last season ended, um, probably feeling like there's unfinished business and now they get to do it against a rivalry at home with a new ballpark. Like I, that's, uh, there is an awful lot of like emotion there. So unless that turns 
bad on the Gators. I don't really see how, you know, how, how Miami is supposed to, to match that. Um, you know, yes, it's a rivalry and yes, they want, they want to prove something and all the rest of it, but I, there, there's just going to be an awful lot from the, uh, from the Florida side that Miami is going to have to have to try and match on the road. Yeah. A couple things there. I, I think their best chance Miami's best chance I think here is, is perhaps on Friday, not only because you have a more experienced guy on the mountain in Fetterman, but also I think the scenario that you can craft for, for Miami to come out and, and grab a win is on Friday when, you know, maybe Florida's not maybe not necessarily caught up in it, but there's going to be a lot involved in, in opening this new stadium and they're going through, you know, a game day prep in, in that new stadium for the first time. And they're kind of taking it all in a little bit. And, um, you know, Miami comes out with a lot of energy, like Miami's going to be up for this series. Like there's, there's nobody going to come out flat probably, but you know, you could see maybe a scenario where Miami comes out just like redlining the first few innings and they're squaring balls up and, you know, um, you know, Fetterman's got a couple of extra ticks on the fastball and a little bit sharper on the, on the secondary stuff. And maybe Miami's able to, to hold on the last few innings and, and get that win on Friday. It kind of seems like maybe that's the, the scenario I can picture in my mind for the, 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 the Friday win there. The, my one disappointment with the series, and it's, it's understandable, I guess, uh, especially given this time of year, that even in places like Florida, it gets cooler as the sun goes down, but um, no night games here. Um, and sometimes that- yeah, that's not an accident. Yeah, the, the, the night games, I think, sometimes give a, a little bit more juice to some of these, these things, although without, without the fans on, on the same level as they would be given a normal schedule and a normal fan situation, um, maybe you, you lose less there. Um, but sometimes the, these night games can add a little extra, extra little bit of oomph to what's already a pretty hot rivalry series. And so that's a little disappointing that we don't get at least, you know, one night game out of the deal. But certainly I'm not going to uh, make more of that nitpick than what it is. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's fair. I mean, just generally on opening weekend in a lot of parts of the country, they try to avoid or even throughout February, try to avoid night games a little bit. Um, I think, though, I don't know whether this Friday night game would have been a night game, but there's definitely TV considerations being taken in here as well because it is it is the game that it is, and it is the new ballpark. Um, so I think that they wanted to get it on TV, and shouts to SEC Network for finding a hole for it. Um, that's not always easy to do this time of year and probably is particularly difficult given um, – you know, the extra, every, everything else that, that's going on, um, you know, because some of the, you know, just basketball rescheduling and how, how crazy the winter sports scheduling has, has been. So I appreciate that, uh, that that is, uh, is going to happen on, uh, on national TV. Uh, you know, we've talked about the, the Miami freshmen here uh, and, and how, how difficult it's going to be for them. But, you know, if we take it back a year, Hunter Barco was a freshman, still is technically a freshman for Florida, but last year he was a true freshman. He, uh, he moved into the, the rotation um, for, uh, for this, this game. He hadn't started on opening weekend for the Gators. They put him in on Sunday to face Miami in his first career start. And all he did down in Coral Gables was hold the Canes to one run on two hits and two walks and five and a third. 
Now, Hunter Barco, absolutely special. Everything you saw from him was special. So, I, but there is an example right there last year uh, of a guy go, going down the road, making his first career start and, and having a really good start, um, you know, in this series. So if you're, if you're a Miami fan, I guess that's kind of what you're hoping for here is that, you know, those guys are able to, to do what, what Barco did at Mark Light a year ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said it at the top, but I think I, you and I are on the same page. I just, uh, so this is not a disagreement. I just want to make clear too to the listeners that uh, by no means are, I think are Teddy and I saying that, that Miami doesn't have the talent to pull something off. If, if Florida, for some reason comes out with rather than it's a game or B game, maybe their C game. Uh, Cause you know, these kids are human uh, stuff happens. So <laughs> there is Miami is absolutely talented enough to make this a competitive series. Neither of us really see that happening just given how overwhelming Florida is coming into this season. But Hey, I mean, stranger things have happened. So Miami is very much a live dog in this series. And, and you're right. I mean, there is some precedent for, you know, precocious freshmen are precocious for a reason. And, you know, we see that in them. So, it, you know, it, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing. So it's, it's a good point you bring up because I don't, I also don't want to, as much as I am, am confident in Florida winning the series, given not only this team, but their history, I also don't want to discount how talented this Miami team is and their ability to compete this weekend. Yeah, I, I think the other important thing to remember is that, yes, Florida swept the series last year, but the first two games of that series went extra innings, and the third game was a two-run game. So, you know, if, if you if you look at it, yes, it's a sweep in Coral Gables, and it was Miami's first – or uh, it, yeah, it was the first time Miami got swept at home by Florida since 2012, and – you know, all, all the rest of that, but they, I mean, the run, the, the, the scores were two to one in 11 innings, seven to four in 10 innings, five to three on Sunday. It could have gone differently with relative ease. Um, you know, so Miami's going to have to find more offense than they had last year, though. Like that is, that is one thing that really stands out that they only scored eight runs on 18 hits in this series a year ago. And, you know, all of, the pitchers that they faced last year are back for Florida. Um, and now they're doing it on the road. So that that's going to be what Miami has to turn around if they're going to, uh, if they're going to flip the result. Um, I, I think even more than the pitching because Miami's strength this year, at least right now is in the lineup. The pitching might round into form as these guys settle into new roles and get used to college baseball. But right now, you know, Miami has two first-team All-Americans at the heart of the order in Terrell and and uh, Del Castillo. Those guys and and company around them need to carry some of some more load so that the pitching staff, these these freshman arms in particular, aren't being asked to to match Florida uh, pitch for pitch because that that's probably not a sustainable thing for 27 innings. Um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's what I'm watching down, uh, d- down in Gainesville this weekend. And, um, just seeing the ballpark is going to be great as well. Everything we've seen in pictures, uh, they've been using it all fall. Uh, it looks amazing. I'm excited to see what it looks like in action this weekend. All right. With that, let's, uh, let's move on over to Arlington where the state farm, 
college baseball classic is being held at the new globe life field. You may have seen that stadium hosting the world series last year. Uh, if you didn't, it's still hosting the world series. You just missed out on the Dodgers winning, uh, nothing, nothing really to see there. <laughs> uh, th this, uh, this tournament includes Mississippi state, Ole Miss, Arkansas on the SEC side and on the Big 12 side, it's Texas, TCU, and Texas Tech. All six schools ranked in the top 15 of the Baseball America Top 25. Uh, it starts on Saturday. It was supposed to start on Friday, but again, the, the weather situation in Texas pushed it back. Uh, hopefully, they're able to, uh, to get it off as scheduled now, but it, it starts Saturday uh, with Mississippi State and Texas. And frankly, Joe, I, they, they had no bad choices in terms of how they were going to start things off. But, you know, for, uh, for being an 11 a.m. start, like that is, uh, that's a wild start to the tournament. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, one of the, the things about, you know, one of the comparisons you can make here is to the, the Minute Maid tournament. And we've made that comparison before, but sometimes you do get kind of the sleepy opening, you know, opening, um, opening day games, I guess, on that Friday. And, uh, but that, that will certainly not be the case here, but you're right. I don't, I don't really know the permutation that would have necessarily created anything, anything less than that. But um, I, I think my, my takeaway with this is I, I've had people ask me before, speaking of the Minute Maid tournament, um, I've had people ask me before, like in previewing that tournament, you know, who do you expect to win? Like who really plays well in these tournaments? And I don't know that there's a great, answer because I, I mean anything can happen in any tournament but I think I mean I've seen some some crazy stuff I mean teams that go three and oh or two and one and in the mid-may tournament that just had no business being that or, or doing that and just kind of played out that way I think the uniqueness of the ballpark situation I think obviously Minute Maid provides its own challenges because the geography or the I'm sorry the geometry of the stadium is a little bit wonky a little less so with, with State Farm or Globe Life Field, pardon me, Globe Life Field. Oh, by the way, uh, side note, I was going to jump in. This, uh, how dare you? This is a showdown, not a classic. Oh, excuse like, me. Classic connotes quality, and they're not really willing to guarantee that. Although I think they're probably safe in that. This is a show. They're guaranteeing a showdown. They're not guaranteeing classic. I think that's that's what they're going for here. But um, but so I mean, I would just I mean, this is this is the equivalent of a shrug emoji or throwing my hands up, but. I just don't know that there's really any good way to ever, especially when the field is this loaded, predict who will play well here, because I think there's so many factors into it. I mean, now you've added in the factor of how arduous was your travel to get here? Did you have to ride a bus for 10 hours going 45 miles an hour on the highway because you didn't want to skid out, you know? Um, <laughs> so that's a factor that what isn't normally a factor, but it's also how do you handle the ballpark? You know, how, so sight lines are kind of weird. It's going to be a mostly empty ballpark more so than, than normal. So it's just going to be kind of a, sometimes it can have kind of an uncanny valley effect where stuff echoes really loudly and you can hear all kinds of things and all kinds of chatter. And so who handles that? You know, I, I tend to think that I like the teams in these tournaments that are able to throw a lot of things at you um, versus teams that are tend to be more one trick ponies. It's why I look at a team like Texas tech, which is easy to say because of the highest ranked team we, we have in this group, but they're a team I think of where, they just throw big arm after big arm after big arm at you. Um, and then offensively, 
they've got all kinds of platoons early in the season. They're mixing and matching to try and see what works. And I think that type of thing, that kind of button mashing, I think can sometimes work in, in tournaments like this, but, but truly I don't know that there's a ton of rhyme or reason often uh, why one team comes in and, and plays really well in a tournament like this and, and which teams don't, especially when it, it seems so evenly matched on its face. I mean, here's one thing I can guarantee that gets said this weekend is that uh, this feels like Omaha. Like you might say that early season tournaments a lot of times feel like regionals, but this one, this feels like we're in Omaha. Or uh, if this field were in Omaha, like all, all six of these teams were in Omaha, like I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And some other coach is definitely going to say, you know, the crazy thing about this is that there are going to be schools here that go one and two or oh and three, and, and they're going to go to Omaha. And all of that may be true, but like, <laughs> welcome, welcome to opening weekend, I guess. That is the, the crazy thing here. And it's going to be important not to overreact both. You know, I'm just saying that for me and Joe, as we remember when we're putting together a top 25, like, look, somebody here, multiple teams here have to leave with losing records. So the sky is not falling necessarily. I mean, there's a difference between going one and two and, um, you know, having had a chance to beat the Reno and just not getting it done or getting blown off the, the field three times. Uh, yeah. But good teams are going to have bad weekends here. And I don't know which ones it's going to be, but it's going to be interesting to, to see just how it all comes together. I think that the pitching in this tournament is kind of ridiculous when you consider that, again, on that that first game of the tournament is going to be Christian McLeod versus Ty Madden. Ty Madden has top 10 pick upside. I don't know that Christian McLeod has top 10 pick upside, but he might. He certainly has first round upside. And then, you know, it, it just continues throughout the day from there. Like, uh, that's uh, – that's a really loud start and, and uh, pitching and runs are pitching and defense run prevention is going to be uh, a, very much on display throughout the weekend in Arlington. It's one of the other things I don't really know what to expect with though, is because if this tournament were happening, let's say this was the, the Frisco tournament, which is four teams, not six, but, but go with me here. If it was at in Frisco or round rock or minute made because minute made is a dome, but it's not heated. And so you and I both know that uh, could be a little brisk in that building. Uh, Globe life apparently is heated to a greater degree. So maybe it's not quite as chilly because I think if this tournament were in one of those places, you would say, yeah, runs are, are going to truly, truly be at a premium. And I still think that's going to be the case. But I think in a scenario where it's a tournament being played a little bit more out in the elements than, than this one, I, I would think that would be kind of a first of first of four wins on any given game, even, even through to Sunday, by the way. I mean, Sunday games are can notoriously get a little bit ugly, but I don't know if that's really going to be. I mean, I'm sure there will be at least one ugly game in this batch because anytime you have nine games, one is bound to be. But for the most part, I think these are all going to be pretty clean, well pitched games. And, and I think normally I would say that the cold temperatures would help that, but I just don't know what to expect, how much the elements are, are going to play a part because, yes, the place might be heated, but it's also not normally trying to heat up from temperatures that are, you know, around the freezing level. Yes, I think that's a, a big, big thing. Like, I I don't know what their normal, like what their platonic ideal of a, of a temperature is in there. But yeah, I, I can promise you that when they designed that thing, they thought they were going to have to heat it from like, I don't know, 45 
on the outside, not from 35 or 25. So uh, it, it, my guess is it's going to be chilly in there regardless. So it's uh, that that's something to watch. I, Joe, is there any player that you're like really looking to in this tournament that, that might might jump out to you? Like I mentioned, you know, McLeod. Uh, I, I'm very much interested to see what he looks like. Can he continue what he was doing uh, last uh, last spring? He started the year so, so well. Uh, as a group, I'm very interested in just knowing what Arkansas's pitching looks like because I they, they could line it up in any number of ways, and this is going to be our really first indication. But for you, who are the who are the player players or, or position groups that, that you're looking at in, in this tournament? One for me is the the front of the, the well, really the entire old Miss rotation, because you and I talked about this. We're putting a lot of um, optimism around the rotation for Ole Miss of Nikhazy, Hoagland, and Derek Diamond. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. However, you know, let's not forget a little bit that, that Diamond was a freshman last year and Hoagland looked much improved last year, but it was a small sample. And the year prior, he, he, he'd had his share of struggles. And so I, I'm kind of curious to see in an, in an environment where no matter who starts which of those games, they're going to face off against three pretty talented teams. So I'd like to see how that group kind of deals with that, because I'm not saying I necessarily doubt that group, but I think we are giving a lot of benefit of the doubt to a group that I think you can, you can maybe still have a, just maybe, you know, two cents worth of skepticism about against the, the best of the best uh, in college baseball. So I'm kind of eager to see, them come back out and kind of prove what they looked like they were proving in 2020 before things were canceled. I think on a, on another note, kind of on the other side of the spectrum, the Texas lineup, I think is always just going to be fascinating because that's the big key, right? Like if, if time Madden pitches like we expect and, and some of these other guys, Pete Hansen, once he's hundred percent and, and back, I mean, we feel pretty good about that unit, but how much is Texas going to hit? Are there game changers here offensively? You know, uh, we know a little bit about a guy like Zach Zubia. We also know Mike Antico from St. John's, but you know, Antico is not a guy who's going to come out and hit 20 bombs. Um, so what does that offense look like? Can we start to see, um, you know, little, little bits of info? Can we glean bits of information here and there about what that lineup is going to look like if it ends up being as good as Texas hopes it can be? And then I, I think it's a similar thing with TCU where, my questions with them, we talked about this earlier in the preseason, was my question with TCU is what kind of star power do they have in the lineup? It felt like going into the season, you know, Coach Loschnagel talked a lot about, you know, we've got a lot of guys back in the lineup, but our competition has been really, ha- has been really fierce in the fall and, and in the preseason. And so there, nothing has been guaranteed for those veterans. And, and coaches say that, like every coach says that. But with, with them, it really felt like there was some truth to it. And the projected lineups that were kind of out there for them included some freshmen. And so I'm curious to see where the star power is in the lineup because they have a lot of really nice pieces. And maybe the I think the floor is maybe higher for the TCU offense versus the Texas offense. But maybe the ceilings are similar. Um, or maybe their ceiling is a little less because Texas has maybe a little more potential and star power in the lineup. I, I don't know. So I think the TCU lineup is a is a similar question mark because I, I'm curious just a to see what the lineup looks like because they've got a ton of options, not just in terms of do we start these freshmen or do we start these fifth year seniors, but also does this guy play 
third base, left field, or first base? And does this guy play second base or shortstop or, or wherever? They've got a lot of those types of decisions to make. And so I'm sure that will continue beyond just this first weekend. But I think sometimes I think you can catch a glimpse of what the coaching staff hopes the eventual lineup looks like by what they roll out there early on in the season. And I think we've mentioned every team in this field, except for the number three team in the country, that's Texas Tech. So Joe, what are we watching with Texas Tech this weekend? Well, I did briefly mention at the, at the top that, and it was a, a, just a passing mention, so it's good you circled back on them, but I actually like their chances in a tournament like this because you've got those three games stacked up over three days. And I think sometimes that especially against good competition rewards depth and rewards versatility. And I think Texas tech brings that to the table where they're not really sweating it. If they only get three innings from a guy in a start, because that sometimes is just kind of how they play it. And so they're just going to keep throwing guys, throwing 95 at you out of the bullpen until they find the guy they want to ride for a little bit. And it's the same thing offensively. You know, do you, did you get a couple bad at bats from this guy in the first couple innings? Okay. Let's, let's pinch it for him and have this guy play the rest of the game. Like Texas tech loves to play that type of game. And I think that bodes well in, in this type of scenario where there just might be guys that aren't ready for the moment. Um, there might be guys that might be a little bit struggle in the, in the situation or against the, you know, freshmen or newcomers that just aren't ready for that level of competition in the first weekend. And Texas tech can really play around with who they're throwing out there. So I, I really do like, I really do like that, that particular type of team in a tournament like this, they have had some, some rough luck with some injuries early on, you know, uh, Jacob Brustowski, who's a, a left-hander um, out of the bullpen and then Hunter Dobbins, who was, was going to be a big part of things on the pitching staff have both uh, suffered injuries in the preseason. So they're, they're maybe a little bit shorter on the mound, which is not great for a team that we had some questions about what exactly the pitching staff would look like. But I think it speaks to the depth they've accumulated that while that, is less than ideal. I still don't really have a ton of concern that they're going to find arms to get outs. And without looking back at their year by year of what they've done in Minute Maid, um, I feel like under Tadlock, now you go back before Tadlock and it's a very different story. Texas Tech would come to this the thing at Minute Maid every couple of years and would look like they didn't necessarily belong with the best teams. But since Tadlock has come along at Texas Tech, I feel like they usually are up for the moment down at, down at Minute Maid. I, I can't think of a lot of times where they've been in that tournament and they've kind of come out flat or haven't looked the part. And I think that that is in large part due to the fact that they, they can just kind of throw the kitchen sink at you in a, in a format like this. Yeah. I think for me, the, the way the pitching staff comes together at Texas tech is almost always going to be the thing that most interests me just because they mix and match so much. And especially on an opening weekend, you know, new guys in new roles. And then this year, the pitching staff got such an infusion of talent from its newcomers. What do, what do the true freshmen look like? What does Brandon Birdsell look like? Is a junior college transfer? How does Micah Dallas look like? I mean, he's a returner, but like now, assuming that he goes back into the rotation, um, you know, how does he handle that uh, after moving the bullpen last year? Just a lot of of things you can look at with them from pitch inside the lineup. So much of it is back because they were so young last year, uh, but it is going to look different without Brian Klein in it this year. Uh, so 
yeah, that that's a change. He's been a he was a four year starter for them. So just somebody is going to have to step up and kind of take on that that role of being just a steady, reliable hitter near the top of the order. So who's that going to be, and, and what does JC on look like after you know what looks like a breakout summer, but came against very uneven competition, uh, given the the kind of summer ball experience that it was, not just for him, but but for everyone around the country. So. A lot to uh, to look at there, even with the the number three team in the country. All right, we're going to move on uh, from the uh, from the State Farm College Baseball Showdown, as as Joe lets me know. Not a, not a classic, but a showdown. And we are going to uh, to head to Virginia, which is hosting UConn uh, there in Charlottesville. UVA not used to being at home during opening weekend. It's been a few years since they've done that, but again, in this weird, weird year, they decided to stick uh, close at home. Weather's going to be a little chilly, uh, so nothing the Huskies aren't aren't um, unfamiliar with, uh, but of course the Who's practicing there all year long. They, they know what it's about, too. So uh, an interesting matchup, a lot of pitching in this one. UConn, we've talked a bit about throughout the preseason. We had Jim Penders and Brian O'Connor, for that matter, on the podcast. Uh, but we, we talked about how UConn is moving into the Big East as the Big East favorites. And what does that do for them RPI-wise? Do they need to challenge themselves a little more? Well, here's a, here's a challenge right out of the gate. Go play the number five team in the country uh, on the road. So we'll, uh, we'll hopefully – get a better view of both of these teams coming out of the weekend, but especially UConn, we, we should get uh, a pretty decent feel for, for what they're about facing a really difficult Cavaliers team. Yeah, I think it'll be, you know, I think it's a, one of those deals too, where this, this feels like a little bit of a UConn special where like UConn will just pop up and, and win these types of series. And they're often a little bit inconsistent early in the season and they'll, they'll have these kind of wild swings and it makes a little bit of sense when you consider how much traveling they have to do to get games early in the year. So I think there's a little bit of uncertainty with this series just based on that alone. Uh, I looked at the weather for Charlottesville, going to be a little chilly, but not too bad. It could definitely be worse. So there, there is that. I think it's like, you know, high forties, which for the highs, which are not great, but also, like I said, could be a heck of a lot worse. I, I've certainly sat around in worse or opening weekend of, college baseball. So I, I'm really fascinated to see what Virginia does on the mound. They, they felt like a team that, you know, when we talked about them in the, the off season and earlier in the preseason, we're really more of the off season though, because I remember a lot of the conversation was centered around, man, you know, Virginia really feels like a team that's set up really well for four game weekends, right? Cause we talked about, you could do Griff McGarry and Mike Vassell and Nate Savino and then Andrew Abbott. And if there's a seven inning game, like maybe that's where Andrew Abbott fits best. He could give you four innings, maybe five, and then you have two bullpen innings and you're, and you're good. And then ACC doesn't go that route. And so now it feels like they've got extra options, which is of course a good problem to have, but I am kind of interested to see how that all shakes out because that that's to say nothing of all the other guys they have on the staff. I mean, I'm sure there, there are names I should be throwing out there that I'm not, but those are the four most prominent guys they have on the staff. And I'm curious to see how they plug and play there with, with that group. But that's, um, that's one thing I'm looking for here. The other is you mentioned with, with UConn, um, a fascinating team. And it's, it's, it's the kind of deal where I just, I, 
I want to see how well they're able to kind of stay on the field with Virginia. They, like I said, they could pull this upset. That wouldn't be out of character for UConn. Certainly Virginia the favorite here. But I want to see what this UConn team kind of looks like on the field against a team that we think is a is a national title contender. And I think UConn's got a, like a low-key interesting lineup when you start to talk about, um, you know, the Fedco brothers and, um, you know, Pat Winkle and, of course, Chris Winkle and Reggie Crawford is an intriguing player that we, we talked to Jim Pinders it's about. It's an interesting lineup just because there are two sets of brothers. And then they That's all true. happen to be good. But <laughs> that like, is true. how many teams out there are running out two sets of brothers yeah. in their lineup? 44% of their lineup is comes from two families. Yeah, that's um, that is quite quite a, a stat there. But it, it's you know UConn kind of strikes me as as the type of team that is a little bit. I think this is maybe some because it's just like a, a generalization made about northeastern teams. But it does strike me as as kind of a, a pitching and, and defense, and they'll have one or two guys on offense and a lot of grinders in the lineup. But this, I think, this offense I think has a little bit of a higher ceiling than that. And um, so I'm kind of interested to see what that looks like. Obviously, we'll learn a lot more as, as time goes on. Certainly, it would not be any shame if the offense struggles against this Virginia pitching staff. But I would keep an eye on that UConn offense because I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be a little more physical than you're used to seeing from a UConn offense and a little more productive as a result. Yeah, I think that for the last several years, UConn has been a little more pitching based. And you can see that in just some of the players that they've turned out into, into pro ball. Um, you know, looking at Tim Kate, for example, um, they, they've just always seemed to have a real, a real ace, you know, uh, Nick Krauth last year, uh, signs as a free agent. There, there's Tim Kate, um, they're, uh, wow. I'm totally blanking on the guy who came before Kate, who's now in the big leagues. But the point is that they've, they've had a fair amount of pitching, a really nice run here over the last few years and that could be the case again this year they're going to look to ben casparius to lead the rotation uh he transferred from north carolina had to sit out last year due to that transfer but now they can plug him in at the front of the rotation and he's got he's got a real powerful arm now he didn't quite break through at unc uh was trying to be a two-way player for them now he's he's definitely more on the pitching side um I, but it, he's he's a fourth year guy. He's got a big arm. Like I, I really think that you know he's ready to lead this rotation. But this is now going to be a very difficult test for him to to face what is a, a challenging UVA lineup. But UConn, you know, while they're maybe a little more inexperienced on the mound this year, maybe will take a little bit of time to round it to form. They return an awful lot of offense. We mentioned they're the the Fedco brothers and the the Winkle brothers getting Pat Winkle back after missing him last year due to injury is huge. Uh, you know, a, he's just a really good catcher, but B that's another bat to, uh, to the lineup. And then, you know, you look at what Kyler Fedco did last year, uh, you know, kind of as a, as a breakout performer hitting over 400. I mean, that was probably going to go down as the season went on, but it was a, it was an incredible start to the season. And if he can kind of pick up where he left off at, at all, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a big deal. So this could be a very nice, deep lineup. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do against the UVA pitching. But I think more than anything, I'm interested in what UConn's pitching looks like against the UVA hitters because it does look just a little newer. And, you know, that 
Joe Simeone is back in the rotation. He's a steady guy, but they're going to have to find someone after Kasparius and Simeone and seeing how players step up both in the bullpen um, around Caleb Worcester at the back end and in the rotation around Kasparius and Simeone. Uh, I, I think that this this weekend's going to be a good indication of, of who some of those guys will be. To clean up the one thing and then we can move on. Anthony K is the name you were uh, there it you is. were searching for there, which I have to admit I could not remember either. I was sitting there racking my brain I, while you were talking. I, I Googled it, so I will not I will not pass off that I remembered his name either. <laughs> Anthony K, but uh, yeah, we can uh, we can move on. Shouts to Google. Indeed. Um, I, I guess quickly before we move on, Virginia is the number five team in the country. We've talked a fair bit about them, uh, and, and Joe hit on their, their pitching staff really well. I most interesting thing on the hitting side for me is uh, can Chris Newell pick up where he left off last year in what looked like it might have been a freshman of the year pace? Um, that would be big for them if he uh, if he's able to to do that, or even uh, you know anything close to that would be uh, would be big for for the Who's in 2021. All right, uh, next series we are going to is uh, we're, we're going to stay out on the East Coast. We've got Duke going down to Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina traditionally hosts uh, tournaments the first few weeks of the year. Uh, that, that first weekend especially is usually a really good weekend in Myrtle Beach uh, slash Conway. They, they use both the, the minor league stadium and, and their own stadium for, for that tournament. But this year, uh, they are not doing that. It's just going to be Duke, and Duke comes in ranked number 16th in the country. Coastal outside the rankings, but is the Sun Belt Conference favorite. Very intriguing to see what Coastal Carolina has this year. Uh, they reworked the pitching staff a little bit uh, after Zach McCambly moves on into pro ball. The offense gets Parker Chavers back. He was a preseason All-American in 2020, but wound up missing the year due to injury. Uh, so getting him back is, is big. Very excited to see uh, what they look like offensively. And then, of course, it's also just going to be great to see Gary Gilmore back in the dugout at the helm for the Shants after um, you know, his, his cancer scare last year wound up knocking him out of the season. Uh, after I believe it was just two games and Kevin Schnall took over as uh, as acting head coach there. So good that Gary Gilmore will, will be back. Um, very happy to see that. And then on the Duke side, uh, you know, really intriguing team uh, that I think both Joe and I like a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of upside around the diamond, but it's, it's going to be different without Bryce Jarvis. Uh, you know, they're going to have to find, uh, find some replacements for him on the mound and, They've got some options. Cooper Stinson on Friday night looks like he's ready to go as, as a Friday night guy, but it's still going to uh, going to be a little bit of a different look for the Blue Devils. Yeah, it is going to be a little bit a little bit different. I think the good news for Duke is that you know Cooper Stinson really doesn't have to do much different than what he did through four weeks last season to be the type of Friday guy they need and would like him to be. So I think that's that's the good news there. Now, of course, moving him up in the rotation means everybody has to, you know, slot in behind him. And that's one of the things I, I'm interested to see is, is what the rest of the rotation looks like. Jack Carey was off to a, a pretty nice start last year. He's a guy whose stuff ticked up a little bit in the offseason. We, we talked about that at, at some point on the podcast before. But then that third spot, you know, whether it's Henry Williams, who was a freshman who 
they really thought a lot of last fall, worked his way into the competition for a rotation spot, and then only ended up throwing two thirds of an innings, didn't go particularly well, but he's a guy who really looks the part. The stuff isn't quite there yet. It's not super explosive stuff yet, but he's, you know, he's kind of got, got everything you'd want in terms of the makings of a, of a workhorse guy on the weekend. Duke is also just a team that, you know, it feels like maybe we're pretty aggressive having them at number 14 in the country, but I think you and I both agree that it's just a team that you can at this point almost set your watch to. And they're just so quietly consistent now, which is amazing. I've said this before, but if you told us six years ago that this Duke was going to be quietly consistent, we would have been like, yes, quietly consistently, you know, well below average. Like, I guess that's consistent too, but now that they're consistent winners and they're not particularly flashy, they've had, you know, some flashiness at times. I mean, obviously there was a lot of attention paid to a guy like Griffin Conine several years ago and, and what Bryce Jarvis did early last year caught a lot of attention, but that's, that's kind of atypical for them. Offensively, the name is, I think to watch is Peter Matt. It's a, it's a kind of a versatile athletic offense. They don't necessarily have a ton of bangers, although a guy like Michael Rothenberg at catcher can run the ball out of the yard, but I think Peter Matt has the potential. He's a grad transfer from Penn who has the potential to really kind of take the ceiling of this offense to a new level and early returns on, on what he's looked like uh, throughout the fall and preseason are, are very, very positive. He kind of brings a, an additional level of athleticism also, you know, some pop to the lineup. And I think if, if Duke is going to be, it's the best version of itself. It's looking for Peter Matt to not just be a complimentary piece, but to be a real dude in the middle of the order, along with, you know, Rothenberg, and Joey Loprofito and Ethan Murray, guys like that. I think they're looking for him to really be a cornerstone in this offense. There are some complimentary pieces. They brought in several grad transfers. Um, you know, Richard Brereton, who is a guy who played at, at Emory University as a Division II guy. He could be a two-way guy. He's more offense over pitch, at least early in the season. He could contribute. Chris, uh, Chris Davis, who is the son of ESPN's Reese Davis, is a grad transfer from Princeton. He's a guy who could have a little bit of a complimentary role, but, but I think it's Peter Matt in terms of, of the guy who's kind of key to this Duke offense being as, as good as they hope it will be. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting lineup. I think this is going to be a, you know, kind of traditional pitching and defense kind of team, especially with Rothenberg um, and Murray back up the middle. But if some of those, those newcomers uh, can hit on, they, they, they hit on them as hitters, that would be big. And then I think Joey Loprofito's return is, uh, is significant to, uh, to the lineup as well. So uh, I, I don't know what to expect from this series quite as much. Uh, just, I would expect Duke to win. Like they're certainly favored. They're the ranked team for a reason. Uh, but I, I hope to learn more about Coastal, particularly during this series. Um, they, uh, they have some guys that could be breakout candidates. I feel like, you know, Eric Brown in the outfield could be a dude to know for next year's draft. If he can really take a step forward this year, like that would be very exciting for Coastal. I don't know what to expect from Chavers, just given that he's been away from the game for so long. Uh, what Coastal's pitching staff looks like is, is a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, they landed two grad transfers. Those guys are going to factor in in a big way. This is going to be a nice challenge for them after you know Reese uh, Menescalado comes from Wofford and Daniel Cruiser comes from Wright State. Like this is kind of a step up to play Duke, not like Wofford and Wright State didn't play 
you know, bigger teams and non-conference action, but this is, this is a bigger stage. Um, you know, and then the kind of some of those offensive questions that you were touching on with, uh, with Duke, I, I just look forward to learning more about both of these teams this weekend. Yeah, I think more right. so than more so than the other series, this, this, because of the questions coastal has on the mound, and because Duke is still kind of searching for the back of the rotation, this series more than the others we've talked about, there's definitely potential for there to be a game that gets really mucked up and a little bit ugly. And it, you know, it's probably Sunday. It'll probably decide the series. And this, this kind of has the feel of one of those series where the Sunday game gets a little wonky and it tends to one of those games where everybody comes out with black eyes. It is, uh, it is quite possible. All right, Joe, you picked uh, the last series we're going to talk about. So why don't you, uh, introduce that one so there were a couple of other good options out there it's, it's a being that it's a limited relatively limited slate and I, I tried to pick a series that started on friday as opposed to some of the ones that start on on saturday no shots to those but it just felt right to go that route um there so fau ucf is interesting ucf obviously a ranked team number 24 fau a really good team i like the lineup um didn't go that route though uh, san diego san diego state I think has a chance to be more interesting than it's than it's been in a while um, because I think San Diego is more talented than they've been in a while. They have a chance to be a contender in the WCC at a level they have not been in a while. And of course, San Diego State is the um, the metronome marching on out on the West Coast that kind of quietly goes about its business and more often than not finds itself in regionals when it's all said and done. So I think that'll be intriguing as well. But I ended up going with the Louisiana Raging Cajuns hitting the road to visit the Tulane Green Wave in a series that is uh, very sad that they will not have a packed house full of fans because the folks of Louisiana, even beyond LSU, the folks of Louisiana love their college baseball. I'm sure the atmosphere would have been electric. Um, even, even with the, uh, the situation being what it is, I expect there to be a lot of energy just in this series between the players. A lot of these guys I'm sure have, even though Tulane recruits a little more nationally, they do have some, you know, Louisiana flavor on the roster. I'm sure there are players who played with and against each other coming up. So I think there's going to be an energy about this series. I also think it's a, a fascinating series on, on multiple fronts. Tulane is an, is an interesting team that um, was, I would say probably on the, the periphery of the periphery of the top 25 discussion. Certainly if it was a top 35, they would have been in, in better shape there. Like the pitching, uh, have questions about the offense, which is a role reversal from what Tulane has been of late, but certainly Braden Oltoff at the front of the rotation is, has the potential to be the best pitcher in the American, one of the best, frankly, in the country, if he starts the way he did last year when he was basically unhittable for the first few weeks of the season. So like what you see there offensively with Tulane, it starts with Trevor Minder. They're going to need to fill out the lineup around Trevor Minder because they are a team that did lose. They were a pretty old team offensively last year. So they had some guys who were already fifth year seniors. Some of those have, have moved on. So they actually are one team that did suffer some attrition in a way that a lot of teams simply did not. But they're certainly a very talented team, very intrigued to see uh, what it looks like for them. Perhaps more fascinating is UL. And that's because, I mean, that's a program that's really in the middle of, of what I think everyone would classify as a, a, a big rebuild under Matt Deggs. And I look at the example of what Deggs did at Sam Houston, where the first year he gets there and there were some, some growing pains. Like they were about 500. They were a little better than 500 in the Southland, but generally were about 500 that year. 
and were just not very good. It was clear they were a step back from, from where the, the teams were under David Pierce the few years prior. And it wasn't just that they were pretty mediocre. It was that there were some guys who had big roles the previous couple of years who had lesser roles. There were some guys who were in and out of the lineup and in and out of, of the, the mix on the, on the pitching staff. And it seemed like nobody started every game. Like every player started, you know, 30 some odd games. It was just kind of like a, clearly it was an awkward transition in some cases. And, but the next year they went 24 and six, won the Southland. They were back in a regional. And I think the question is, even though it was a shortened season last year, was 2020 maybe the transition season for the Cajuns? And 2021 should be a season we expect them to maybe surprise and compete in the Sun Belt? Or because of the nature of 2020, is 2021 more of that transitional season? Certainly there has continued to be turnover on the roster that suggests that 2021 could still be a bit of a transitional year. However, especially on the mound, there are some intriguing pieces when you talk about Hayden Dirk, um, you know, a hard-throwing guy, you know, Connor Cook, uh, moving from the bullpen to, to starting games, basketball up to the mid-90s, um, Connor Angel, who was up to 98 this past fall, Spencer Arigetti, uh in the bullpen, started out his career at TCU, now is at UL, his fastball's up to 96. Like, they're going to throw big arms at you. The offense is maybe more of a question, but but certainly if those arms hit for UL, like I don't think there's any reason they can't compete with with most of the Sun Belt, if not the entirety of the Sun Belt. And while Tulane does have some questions offensively, like I said, it's it's a talented enough team to where I think you're going to get a decent snapshot of of where of where UL is. So I think this is a series that you know hopefully we we get the full series in and we can really get a good snapshot of where these teams are at because I think we could learn a lot about both teams coming out of the weekend. Yeah, I think that's what I'm looking here for the most is just to learn about these teams. The Cajuns have so many newcomers. I have no idea how that's going to come together. Matt Deggs has done this kind of thing before. And you know, I'm just interested to see what it look where they are in the process. You know, did an unusual fall hamper their development at all? Did it not? Like just in general, where are um, where you where are they at in this, you know, building of uh, you know the, the, this this building that that he's doing there? And then Tulane, like you mentioned, just you know, last year was off to such a good start. Now, how do they how do they recapture that momentum? How do they build on it now in in twenty one as they as they look to get back to regionals? And you know, when Travis Stewart was on the podcast, he talked a lot about all of that and, and what the lineup would look like having lost some of those pieces and, and Minder coming back. And you know, it, it's just going to be. I want to see the series play out just so that we can learn more about both of these teams because, you know, both of them are projected to finish near the top of their conferences. Neither is the favorite. Uh, the Sunbelt West is a mess. I mean, anybody could win out West, I, I think, this year. Um, but the, the the American is, uh, isn't much clearer. You know, we have UCF ranked, uh, and, and I think we feel good about them as being the team to beat there, but East Carolina, Tulane, uh, Houston, Wichita, like those teams are all going to be in the mix. And so the, the more we can learn, the sooner, uh, the, the happier I'll be, because right now those are two conferences that, that seem pretty muddled to me, but are certainly, you know, 
in the Americans' case, it'll definitely be a multi-bid league, and in the Sunbelt's case, it certainly could be. So uh, getting some clarity on that would be, uh, would be outstanding. All right, so there's plenty to watch around the country when you, you're beyond what we, what we talked about here. Um, there's a good chance that some more series will be created out of thin air or dis disappear uh, by the time you, you're listening to this. So, you know, just got to keep up with all of it. Uh, but, but hopefully we can have a fun opening weekend. Uh, despite the weather and the pandemic challenges that that are are existent right now, just hopefully everyone is able to get out, or as many teams as possible are able to get out on the diamond and and play some games because you know it's been it's been a long time. I, I know everyone is is itching to uh, to make it happen. So we're uh, we're going to be watching all of it and tracking all of it. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. We'll we'll be dispensing hopefully some wisdom throughout the weekend. Uh, I like to think so. Anyway, I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, and we will have plenty of content on the website throughout the weekend uh, about opening weekend and, and opening day and, and all the rest of that. So I would encourage you to check all of that out. And then next week, we'll be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast to talk about a new top 25 and all the goings on throughout the week. Look for that in your podcast feeds early next week. Uh, so with that, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thank you all for listening today. Happy opening day to everyone. Very excited, very exciting time for the sport just after, after again, a, a trying, difficult offseason. So congratulations on making it through that. Happy opening day. Uh, thank you again to Rapsodo for presenting the Baseball America College podcast for Joe. I'm Teddy. We'll see you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.